Are you ready to jam? Oh, yeah. At Genzabar Jam, Genzabar's annual meeting for users in Orlando, Florida, 2023 at the Gaylord Palms Resort. We're going to learn, share, and connect. You can register today at jam.genzabar.com. Ready to revolutionize your higher ed marketing game? Yes! Well, then don't miss out on Element 451's Engage Summit, June 27 and 28. Explore the cutting-edge world of education and AI technology and unleash your creativity like never before. Register today at engage.element451.com and use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the EdUp Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio back here in another episode. We've done 610 of these in three and a half years. Maybe we'll do another 610 over the next three years, although probably more than that as we visit more conferences. You know, uh, reading the news today, um, and today will be two or three weeks from now when you listen to this, but it's really interesting that uh, Clearinghouse, National Student Clearinghouse, puts out a report, says that now 40 million Americans, 40 million Americans are some college no credential is what they're calling it now. Some college no credential. Uh, it used to be some college no degree like a week ago, but apparently it's some college no credential now. So it's just an interesting issue unfolding in front of us and what that means for the future of higher education is each learner tries to experience their pathway differently um, there is just a lot of, a lot of, I don't know, content out there about whether to go to college, maybe not to go to college, what this means. Oh my, um, that's what's going on in the news today, you guys, but we're going to talk a little bit about higher education, a little bit about books, a little bit about publishing, a little bit about journals. Actually, I'm not going to do much of the talking today because I'm going to bring first my guest co-host. It's been a while. We've been trying to schedule. He keeps canceling on me and canceling on me. No, he doesn't really do that. It's actually kind of cancels. I was going to put you up on that, Joe. But yeah, there That's you go. right. He's Steve Morgan. He's the U.S. Managing Director at Squiz. What's going on, Steve? How are you? Hey, Joe. Nice to see you. Um, yeah, it has been a while in the planning. But yeah, I'm I, this, uh, looking forward to this, though, because I've um, been providing software to the higher ed industry for the last 20 years to run their websites and portals and things. But the other huge consumer of co content management systems is the publishing industry. And we've done a lot of work in the publishing industry too. So this brings together two of my great passions over the last 20 years. So I'm really Intent. looking forward to seeing Intent to our guest. Don't yeah. give it away, Steve. Don't okay, okay. <laughs> be a rookie I just mistake. gave away your intro at the beginning. There you go. Yeah, it would be a rookie mistake to tell me to tell the guest before I intro them. <laughs> but tell, tell us real briefly, give us just a one minute. Tell us about Squiz, what you guys do in particular. Yeah, we provide software that runs digital experiences for universities, mainly universities and government. And um, and we've been around for 20 years. We founded in Australia and we have a digital experience platform that lets you quickly create and build digital experiences on the fly. Awesome. We love that. Well, we're going to talk about this intersection that you discuss publishing technology. We're going to bring in our guest. This has been a long time coming. I and just to tell a quick story, I got on with the, uh, with my I almost said her name. See, I almost blew my own introduction of her. That's how we do it here on the Edup Experience. <laughs> but I got on the on the line with her. I was going to say phone, but that doesn't that's not right either. Got on with her. I said, "Guest, I think we can do this." And then somebody came blowing through my door and says, "We have an emergency." I don't even remember what it is, but I remember immediately sweating. 
because they looked like something was going on. Um, and I said, we're, we're going to get you soon. And soon is like four months later now, four or five months right. later. Yeah. But she's still ready. She's still ready. We have no idea what we're going to talk about. We're going to do it anyway. Here she is. She's Amy Brand. She's director of the MIT Press. Amy, finally, welcome. Finally. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, I love the fact that this is just so freeform. So Beautiful. it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't prepare before and I didn't prepare now. So I'm ready for whatever comes at me. Well, I can tell you, you're not the only one. So we're <laughs> going to just see how this goes. So, so let's, we always assume that there's someone listening that has no idea who our guest is or what they do. And in this particular time, the MIT press, we probably have somebody that doesn't even know about the MIT press. that's listening, probably less, uh, more no than less, but still. Tell us about the MIT Press. What does the MIT Press do? How do you do it? Why is it important? Sure. So the MIT Press is a university press. There are dozens of universities around the world that have their own in-house publishing entities. All of them are structured um, somewhat differently. Um, and here at the MIT Press, we publish about 350, 400 books a year. Um, across fields that MIT itself excels in. Uh, one thing that people often get uh, wrong about university presses is that they are restricted to publishing um, the works of their own community members, their own faculty. That's not the case at all. Very typically, oh. a university, yes, a university press will publish 10, 15% um, of its authors will be from its host institution. Um, most university presses do not publish journals, but we're also a, a major journal publisher at the MIT Press. Um, and again, in fields MIT excels in, which by the way, extend from you know, the STEM side of science and technology all the way through you know, to business and economics and art and architecture and design and many things in between. Um, so, th so that's what we do. We have a staff of over 100, mostly here in the US. We also have some staff in the UK. Um, and, you know, we partner with um, academics and folks in higher ed um, all around the world. Amazing. You keep saying MIT. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> The, so we don't M have somebody that knows. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, asked that. So MIT is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, it is a leading research institution in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, a very powerful institution, um, uh, very well known across the world, and uh, tons and tons of research comes out of MIT. Uh, very smart people go there. Um, I, I didn't go there, so, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I got my I got my PhD here. I, I first came here in 1985 as a grad student. And, and so that's how I date myself when I, I meet meet folks. And yeah, well, uh, I should have introduced you as Dr. Amy Brancy. That, that, that's that okay. One. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, we, we, um, you know, I guess my first question is, how, how do you find the people you're going to publish, right? If 15% is coming out of MIT, 15, 20%, you know who, you know who, right? You know, faculty members, researchers. What about everybody else? Are they pitching the, the MIT press? Are you finding them for specific yeah. projects because they're so, well known in the field? Yeah, great, great question. So um, one of our largest departments, if not the largest department, and this is true across, you know, all, all publishing, whether you're talking about commercial or um, academic publishing, um, are the folks that are, basically 
scouting out and finding the projects, right? They're called acquisitions editors. Um, and we have, I think, 14 plus people at the press with that title who are signing projects. Um, and they all have their areas of expertise. And in fact, when I got into publishing, when I decided to leave academia, that was my first stepping stone in this world. It's um, you know, not unusual for folks with a PhD in a particular field if um, you know, they're interested in staying in the academic world and decide they don't want to do research or teaching um, to land in publishing. Uh, and, and they bring, you know, that was my route, and you bring um, with yourself kind of a sense of what's important in a field, a sense of who's doing what, and that gives you a bit of a leg up. But, um, but even if that's not the case, if you become an acquisitions editor in, say, economics, um, it is part of your job to have your ear to the ground in that field and to be conversant, to know what's happening, to know what conferences to go to, to know how to reach out to, um, and then, of course, how to run the peer review process um, when, when proposals and manuscripts come in. So peer review is a big part of what we do in academic publishing as opposed to, say, you know, uh, fiction publishing in New York. So, um, yeah, so it's a combination of um, kind of actively commissioning projects. That's the most exciting thing for an editor to do. Like, you know that this is the hottest topic in this field and you're, you're going to go out and find the best person to write that book, right? Nailed it. Yeah. What, um, uh, I'm going to ask one more quick question then I pass it to Steve and you can do whatever he wants on the <laughs> microphone. Um, how many pitches do you take because I'm, I'm assuming, and I think this is a fair assumption for me to make, if you're published by the MIT Press, there is some prestige that comes with that. It's 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 a mm -hmm. something you would say, like I was published by the MIT Press, right? It would be an impressive statement. Uh, to make. Yes, ab absolutely. Um, so, you know, academic publishers and university presses are very kind of core to the academic career advancement, you know, ecosystem, right? So in many fields, um, having a book published is part of how you get promoted or part of how you get tenure. And there are presses that are more prestigious than others in particular fields. And so, yes, we are a, a leading, highly prestigious publisher um, in, in several disciplines. And um, it's very selective. It does vary from field to field. I know from talking to our acquisitions editors that, you know, they're fielding hundreds of emails, you know, every, every week often with people pitching. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, I can't give you the exact number, but the, it's the ratio, lot. it's, it's a lot, you know, and again, we are extremely selective. So fair enough. All right, Steve, you're on the mic, yeah. my friend. Uh, yeah, Dr. Brown, the, um, we've done a lot of work with like some big sort of commercial publishers like Elsevier and people like that, where it's all about scale and building the biggest thing. And um, we've also done some work with things like Oxford University Press, which I imagine mm -hmm. is similar. Well, why is it important for MIT to maintain an independent university press uh, outside of those big commercial operations? Yeah, I, I love that question. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot and writing about a lot. Um, I do write a lot about the academic publishing industry. Um, I think it's it's really important for the academy to own scholarly and scientific communication to some extent, and for there to be kind of a diversity of, of ways of publishing and roots of publishing. Um, and so um, when you when you think about 
say a company like Elsevier, right? Everybody, and that that's always kind of held up as the example of the, like the large commercial publisher that some people think is evil. I know many, know and love many people who work there and I know that's not the case, right? But um, when, you know, given the internet and technology and the kinds of systems that you have and the way in which we publish, um, how we create and disseminate contact content has reverberations throughout this ecosystem and can ultimately affect the business decisions that get made at a university about who we hire. So if a company like Elsevier is not only um, through its size, you know, controlling the business models of publishing, but then also, um, you know, controlling some of the analytics and evaluation systems of publishing. And if there isn't as much transparency as one would hope about the, those sorts of things, it does affect the academy. Um, and so the way that I think about it is in terms of kind of bibliodiversity. It's not that a university press or university presses could address all of the needs of scientific and scholarly communication, but it, it should remain a very, I think, healthy, sizable um, part of the industry. Um, and I, you know, I could go on about that. I do feel extremely strongly about what I see happening in academic publishing and and the ongoing consolidation and it's not just um you know larger publishers eating up smaller publishers it's also as they move into technology and platforms and analytics and data um that that there's a risk of you know um a kind of monopoly i mean and, and things that i've written i've i've even said that you know it sometimes feels like commercial entities are like colonizing higher ed right so yeah, it's a real danger, isn't it? Yeah, and so, I, so I, think I, it I wonder is. what the I wonder what the opportunity is. Then, do you think there's an opportunity for like university brands outside of the really? I mean, MIT and Oxford have like a wonderful brand to parlay into publish the university press. Any any opportunities for for smaller university presses that you see? Oh, of, of course, and there are many small university presses that are extremely important in the fields in, in, in which they publish. Um, and, you know, depending upon the relationship, the financial relationship between, or the structural relationship between the press and the, and the university that they're a part of will, you know, endure, we hope for decades, you know, um, to come, right? Um, there are, especially um, in, in universities that, are more humanities and social science focused that have presses that may be strong in you know a few different fields. Um, there's a recognition that that these entities are key to the mission of of the university. So, um, you know, we're all a little all us university presses are just like a little bit different in how we're, we relate to our our universities and and what we specialize in and what we're strong in. The MIT press is fairly large within that group, but not nearly as large as Oxford, right? Um, so, but there, there are tiny ones. There, there are, God, there are presses, you know, that, I, that I'm aware of that, you know, have just a handful of employees and publish 20 books a year. Where this year, we actually have a record number. I think we're publishing something like 430 books this year, which is the largest we've ever published, so. How, how yeah. large is the infrastructure and have you read each book yourself, Dr. <laughs> oh God, no. Um, I I, uh, I never aspired to do that. Um, you know, we, we distribute that work. So we have 
as I said, over 100 staff and, and also work with a number of vendors, um, not only you know, on the on the platform technology side, but also in the editorial production and, and design side, right? So it's become, I mean, and, and this is good for, you know, for your business, Steve, and, and all the other platform providers, so much of what we do in academic publishing is actually outsourced to, to other partners. Um, so, and, and the advantage there, of course, is that we can scale much more readily if we have, you know, 10 more projects in a month than we might have predicted, then we, we just are partnering more, more actively um, with, with the vendors that we work with. But we have a very sizable um, EDP or editorial uh, production and design team. We have a very sizable marketing and publicity staff. We have a very sizable sales staff. We are the only university press actually that is distributed by Penguin Random House, which is the biggest publisher in the world. So that also adds a lot to how much we can scale and and how you know how how much we penetrate different markets around the world. All right. Well, that was impressive. It's time to jam. Oh yeah. At Genza Bar Jam. Genzabar's annual meeting, May 31st to June 3rd. JAM is the annual meeting for the Genzabar community. Engage with Genzabar product experts and executives. Share ideas, insights, and information with your peers. It's time to JAM. Oh, yeah. You can register now at jam.genzabar.com. Don't settle for average marketing strategies. Join us at the Element 451 Engage Summit, June 27 and 28, and discover how to harness the power of AI technology in higher ed marketing, connect with industry leaders, explore cutting-edge technologies, and future-proof your marketing strategy. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Register now at engage.element451.com. I have to ask you, Ron, before I pass it back to Steve, what is being pitched to you right now? Is it all AI coming your way? I mean, there must be some <laughs> trends, right? That are, yes. you're, you're seeing the ups and downs. And then, and then the secondary question to that is with something like AI, I'm assuming there's going to be more AI books and, and journals and so on coming out. How do you choose the right expert? Because there's so, yeah. I mean, there's like somebody, I read something yesterday that said a hundred, we all know chat GPT, but there were a hundred other AI products released like in the last two days. It's right. You know, I mean, is this coming? Is there a wave of, of publishing oh, coming? I mean, on so many levels, it's not just works about, you know, about AI and about large language models. It's how it's going to change the whole, you know, I think the whole industry um, over time, not immediately. Um, we are actually... I would venture to say probably the most prestigious publisher in the area of computer science and AI and machine learning, right? So we have tons of stuff coming at us. We um, publish some of the leading textbooks, you know, in the in these fields. Uh, we published like the first book on deep learning that ever uh, came out. And and there is a danger as a publisher that you end up competing against yourself, right? There are only, only so many popularized books on AI that one can produce and um, and so we we tend to think about um, you know across the genres of books that we publish in trade text um, and uh, reference works um, and then purely scholarly works uh, you know how how to within a given period of time publish our bet on what the best work is and again not not end up 
signing two books that are, or three books that are actually going to compete with one another. And that's very hard in AI right now. Um, we are being pitched books on artificial intelligence all the time. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not it's more of an art than a science, and and you rely extensively in the kind of publishing we do on um, academics, on peers who perform the peer review. Just like there's peer review in hiring at universities and promoting, or peer review in grant funding, there's very um, you know intensive peer review in academic publishing, um, and so we'll be looking at at the feedback that we get. Um, from from outside experts on what to publish you know, that combined with the expertise of our own staff and we also have a MIT faculty editorial board but yeah go yeah ahead. I was just going to say before I pass it back to Steve I want you all to know that AI called me uh, sent me a message while we were here talking and this is what this is <laughs> what, what did it uh, say it said it's all part of the plan <laughs> so I don't know where that's going to leave us back yeah <laughs> I'm I'm just so interested. I find myself thinking so much these days about the nature of knowledge, right? Like, is 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 there intelligence when there's not a knower, right? And how and and how much these emergent phenomena, you know, are gonna are gonna change the world? Um, it's it's yeah. This is a scary time. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, um, you know, because I can understand, especially around AI and technology, a, a book branded MIT Press is, you know, I, I buy them. <laughs> um, yeah, I was sort of running on the, the journaling, the journal side of things, because I guess it kind of scared me when I understood the journal industry and, and how like private, some private companies have monopolized a lot of that. How do you establish preeminence of a journal and take back mm -hmm. control of that as the preeminent journal for that subject area? Yeah. The, the journal world is so in flux these days. Um, we had a big win that was in the news um, over the last couple of days. It was the second time that the whole editorial board of a very prestigious commercial journal resigned and decided to start a new journal with the MIT Press. Um, and yeah, and those decisions are made um, on the, the the basis of the quality of the of the service that the journal journal editors are experiencing, but also the cost of publishing. So, what's happened in journal publishing now with the move around the world towards open access policy, and I'll explain what that is, um, is that the um, sort of the economics of journals being based on universities subscribing to those journals is in flux, and then moving towards systems in which the author or their university or their funder pays to actually publish, you know, in, in, in these journals. And there's incredible uh, variability around the cost of those charges to publish. And many academics feel like um, the, the prices to publish, these are called APCs, article processing charges, coming out of some of the large commercial publishers are too high. Um, and I would tend to agree. Um, and yeah, so so we are, um, you know, that that's one of the ways, uh, you know, in which we continue to be a major player in the journal publishing space, even as it has consolidated. Um, but what matters in terms of of the you know preeminence of a journal historically, it's been what's called the impact factor, um, which is the sort of a quantification of the of the citations of articles in a particular journal. The, the way in which we talk about impact is really broadening these days um, because things are being made openly available. It also matters how often they are downloaded in the world, um, what kind of traction they get in social media, how often the works get adopted in courses. 
um, all kinds of things. So we have a much larger vocabulary of what counts as influence or impact um, that we're working with, but it's, it's a really exciting time. Um, the, other, the other thing that's happening uh, in journal publishing, and this came to a head uh, during the pandemic, was a move towards what's, what's called preprint publishing, where rather than waiting for um, you know, the whole long process of peer review and publication in a journal, um, many scientists, especially in biomedicine, you know, felt that, that it was their duty to publish their, post their work, post their research as quickly as possible. And so these preprint servers that um, are not typically peer reviewed um, have grown tremendously over the last few years. They already existed, what? but they've really, yeah, taken hold. So. Bet you nobody knows that. Like there are not too many people. I had no idea that that yeah. takes place. Makes yeah. sense, right? There's always kind of a hustle and involved in everything somewhere at some time, but that's really interesting about the journaling. Thank you for yeah. bringing that up, Steve, because I had no idea. Yep. Keep going. The, the, the other play was in, in writing the journals themselves, right? The, the actual software <laughs> tools for writing them and citing stuff. There was a around the, the actual tools of being used to create them. There was another area I saw Mandalay and things like that of like tension maybe between the, the journal writers and the publishers. Is yeah, that, I'm, uh, I'm not exactly sure you're asking. I mean, yeah, so um, there, there was, there were interesting dynamics between um, journalism and the popular media and its understanding, especially early on of um, what was happening with, for example, questions like, you know, where did the coronavirus come from? How did that? Um, and and um, very uh, a couple of months into the pandemic, as unpeer-reviewed content was getting out into the world, you know, through preprint servers, um, there was uh, some blowback against them and a, and a need to start layering kind of peer review um, on, onto these these papers and preprint servers. And that's one of the things that the press did that we're, we're really proud of. We created um, the largest kind of peer review service for preprints on coronavirus. And now we've spread that out to all of infectious disease. Nice. Does uh, that's a, you bring up a really interesting question because there's like a, a purity vibe about the MIT press. Like you want to keep the process pure, peer reviewed. At the same time, you're printing and publishing information about technology, which is all based on speed and ease. <laughs> Yes. Right, and the entire <laughs> publishing industry itself, which is writing, is what AI seems to be solving yes. for. Right, so how, boy, isn't there a heck of a question in there? Yeah, and and, and, and the last time, and all that. Yeah, and and that 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 last topic about you know machine generated text is so new, and so there there are many things happening. Um, the U.S. Copyright Office has already issued policy saying that an AI cannot be an author, right? And there are several That's reasons for that. That's a fact. Um, and, and it is, you know, no doubt there are papers authored by AIs or co-authored by AIs that, you know, already published out in the world. Um, but there are several reasons for that, right? So um, what large language models do is um, kind of build off of already created content um, in some cases, that content may in and of itself be copyrighted. So it's not clear that something that's issued by an AI is actually copyrightable for that reason. Um, it's a, you know, that is a very superficial explanation of the issues. 
But so you have, and then you have, on the other hand, you have publishers um, working together to some extent. Um, the policy that we're seeing now is that, uh, you know, most publishers will say, we do not accept AI authored uh, works, um, but we understand that authors might use AI in the course of creating their new works. And if that's the case, there should be complete transparency around that. And it's oh. probably, you know, the, the same thing that, that, you know, teachers and universities are wrestling with. Um, I would hope that we get to a point where there's a, a positive attitude towards these powerful tools and, and how they how they can aid, um, you know, in the production of knowledge and in learning, just, just like it, it took people, you know, I mean, this is not as transformative, but you can, you remember when Wikipedia, you know, became a thing and all of a sudden it was, it was something that, that students and everyone else was relying on all the time. So. Love that. Steve, do you have any um, final questions or line of questions for our guests here before we give her the final two to close out the episode? Well, I guess, yeah. What, what are you most looking forward to this releasing this year when publishing? Oh, that that's it. Um, here on the Edip Experience, give us all the ones that are coming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> God, there, there, um, there, there's so many exciting things that we're publishing. That's, that's, that's not a fair question. I, I don't like having, <laughs> I don't like having favorites. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we've, um, one of the, I'll, I'll just talk about things that we've recently published. Uh, one of our, our um, most successful textbooks ever is, is, a, is a book called Algorithms. And we, we recently issued our fourth edition of that book. And it's just wonderful to see it going out into the world. Of course, the whole textbook market, as anyone in higher ed knows, is also changing. Um, we're very excited about that. We published um, quite a bit in um, the last uh, year or so around, um, you know, inclusive workspaces, and um, and we continue to publish in that area. Sort of the the changing uh, business environment as it relates to, uh, you know, concerns around diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and now actually we, we have a couple of our new books are just around the whole concept of design, like anything that you're designing, what does it mean to design as inclusively as possible? So um, I'm excited about a number of, 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 of books in that area that we're publishing. Well, I love it. Steve, any last, last question? Yeah, Looks like you're okay. gearing up for one. No, no, I was just saying thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, thank you so much for the for this opportunity. This was lots of fun. Well, we can't um, let you go. Yeah, we got two more. I got two more. Okay. Final questions. The, the, we call this one, well, it's not really a question, uh, but I set it up that way. It's called the open mic. Um, and you get to basically say whatever it is you want about the MIT press, anything coming out. You kind of talked about that, but anything going on, anything we should know, the audience needs to know, anything you're doing, speaking at, anything at all. And then after that, tell us what you see for the future of higher education related to publishing. Um, I think I can wrap all those questions into one thing Ooh, and it's yeah. all related. Yeah, um, I, I think that the way in which we communicate, whether it's for research, research or for teaching and learning purposes um, is really, evolving and again, diversifying in ways that calls on publishers that are based at universities to be very nimble in how they respond to the needs of their community. Um, and so we've been developing something that we call MIT Open Publishing Services, which effectively just disaggregates all the things that get wrapped up into what publishing is traditionally thought of 
and provides those services to our community and to other communities. Um, and so, for example, um, this, this year we had uh, launched in partnership with our new college of computing at MIT, something called the Case Studies in Ethics and Social Responsibility in Computing. And it's a, just a very nimble platform for people who are teaching about ethics and AI, for example, um, to um, publish, design, also have peer-reviewed um, a case study on a particular topic in that field. And we've seen them adopted all around the world. And I think this model of very of, of publishing services, sort of modular publishing services is going to grow. And I think that that is, you know, says a lot about, you know, why universities need to have in-house publishing expertise to support um, researchers and to support learning. Um, and where I see a lot of university presses growing, we're by no means we're, you know, we're not the, the only university press that's thinking in terms of publishing services. We probably are the most advanced when it comes to the, our digital platform. Um, we had launched a, a nonprofit open source publishing software company a few years ago called Knowledge Futures. And um, we have the advantage of being able to use um, the platform that we were you know, involved in putting out into the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think of what I do, I think of what universities needs, need in terms of being, you know, responsive in real time to how knowledge needs to be disseminated, both for, you know, scholarship, but also for, for teaching and learning. True. Love this. I love this conversation. Steve, you've, uh, this is your first time being on an EdUp Experience episode. So I'm going to ask you the last question before I out outro both of you. On a scale of 0% to 100%, how much did you enjoy this episode? Well, because I combined two of the, my great passions over the last 20 years, and I'm <laughs> Dr. Brand, I gave it 100. 100%. <laughs> See how I set that up. I just wanted to get that one <laughs> and and back at you, both of you. That was this was lots of fun. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm gonna just outro my guest co-host. It's his first time on an Edip Experience episode, but not the last, from what I understand. He is Stephen Morgan. He's the U.S. Managing Director at Squiz, and I know he had a good time because he's got a big old smile on his face. <laughs> and of course, your guest today is the one and only. Dr. Amy Brand, director of the MIT Press. Amy, did you have a good time on the podcast today? I, I had so much fun. Thank you very much. With that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Are you ready to jam? Oh, yeah. At Genza Bar Jam 2023 in Orlando, Florida, May 31st through June 3rd for four days of breakout sessions, peer-led discussions, countless hours networking with your peers and the Genza Bar team, social events, meals, everything. Come down, learn from each other, network. It's time to get together, and you can do that at Genzabar Jam. Register now at jam.genzabar.com. Oh, yeah. Experience Element 451's Engage Summit Conference this June and get ready to unleash the power of AI in higher ed marketing deep dive into how this emerging tech will revolutionize the education landscape from personalized student engagement to turbocharging your marketing efforts with AI. These sessions are guaranteed to help you smash your enrollment goals, connect with like-minded professionals, explore cutting edge ed tech products and services, and leave with the knowledge to supercharge your institution's growth. Don't wait, register now at engage.element451.com and seize your chance to lead the pack 
in the AI-driven education revolution, use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off your registration.